Hello and welcome to St. John's Derm Academy podcast, our educational resource for healthcare professionals in dermatology. I'd quickly like to mention our disclaimer that the information in this podcast is based on up-to-date information and expert opinion at the time of its recording. The podcast is intended for healthcare professionals, so although we welcome any patients listening, we do suggest that they see their own physician for personal advice. In the last episode, we discussed the understanding of vitiligo, the changing perceptions of the condition, as well as touching on practical approaches uh, to vitiligo for healthcare professionals. In this episode, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into the treatment and the future of vitiligo treatment. Um, And so, uh, once again, we've got Dr. John Ferguson here joining us. Hello. And so, we're going to start off um, by moving into the treatment approaches. So before we move on to treatment, perhaps we could just touch briefly on what differential diagnoses need to be considered when seeing a patient with vitiligo. Um, right. Differential diagnoses. So um, I think with differential diagnoses, I think it's always really important to... The e- I think the easiest way to do this is always to look at the, first of all, the age of the patient that you're seeing. So, you know, how what's 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 what stage are they at you know often i get referred quite often very young people possible vitiligo babies and things often they have problems with um uh birthmarks um uh um hypomelanotic kind of nevi nevus of ito things of that sort that patients um you know sometimes come in and it's been discovered often age two or something and you suddenly they, the parents notice that there's this funny um, blashcoid nevus that, which is slightly hypopigmented appearing on their skin and you know, often patients come about this this vitiligo so that's a thing that you see in babies in younger children um, uh, sort of four five six often they have slightly hypopigmented areas on their face that turn out to be pityriasis alba um, and then as you go into sort of adolescence, you, you, you know, sometimes they come in and they've got this sort of um, uh, truncal, uh, centripedal, um, uh, hypomelanotic macules, often quite well demarcated, but hypomelanotic, not depigmented. And uh, that, that's this pro- progressive macular hypomelanosis problem. And this is often associated with propionic kind of It's usually people who are in their late teens, early 20s who get that problem. Um, and sometimes also similar age group, um, you can find this pityriasis vesicolor that we're all quite familiar with. And they, they can look quite remarkably similar to vitiligo sometimes and even catch out the odd dermatologist um, who refers in considering it as a possible vitiligo. So it's always worth just having your, um, as well as your Woods lamp, which I mentioned on the last uh, episode, and uh, also having your scrapings kit there. Um, and sometimes, just occasionally, with poorly demarcated hypomelanosis, um, you can see in, in adolescents and in older patients too, particularly patients with darker skin, the sort of um, uh, hypomelanotic mycosis fungoides. I think you always have to have that one in the back of your mind when you're seeing patients of um, uh, who are you know, late teens or 20s, going all the way through to much older patients, um, just in case, because you don't want to miss that diagnosis. So I think if you see, if the vitiligo looks 
hypomelanotic, very poorly demarcated. It's not flaky. It doesn't look like pityriasis vesicolor. We've got to think about a biopsy for those patients. So that's quite an important differential. Um, uh, there are a few other th conditions that I think you know you you you, you pick up um, along the way. Um, idiopathic guttate hypomelanosis, often uh, sort of smaller macules, often slightly raised on the legs of older um, women, often with skin of colour, and you would see little these little dots. And um, yeah, that's worth picking up because it's not vitiligo; it won't tend to progress. Um, it is difficult to treat, unfortunately, and so patients are sometimes a bit disappointed when you say you can't do an awful lot for it. We sometimes try um, uh, topical retinoids and occasionally even cryotherapy sometimes, but it really isn't very easy to get rid of. But the good news is it won't tend to progress and turn into vitiligo, which is often why they've come, because they're worried that it might be that. So it's a useful uh, thing to spot that when that comes up. Um, sometimes we see um, vitiligo, which is hypochromic, and there's a specific subtype that was um, described um, by Khaled Ezzedine, a uh, French dermatologist, of this hypochromic vitiligo that we sometimes see often on the tops of the head and upper trunk. And it, that can be a difficult diagnosis to make. And you really do need to biopsy those patients. So that's a sort of rarer entity. And then, you know, um, yeah, you're, and then you're sort of into, into other subtypes of vitiligo and chemical and things like that that you have to consider too. Um, I think those are the main differentials that I sort of run through when I'm seeing patients. Lovely. And, and so um, once you've got your diagnosis of vitiligo, um, the next question patients often ask is about treatment. So when's the best time to offer treatment to our patients? I think you should offer treatment to the patients as, as soon as they want it. Um, and most patients are coming to, to see you um, for a consultation. Uh, they, they most of the time are interested in treatment. Sometimes patients do just come for a diagnosis or for reassurance, but often patients want treatment for their vitiligo. And um, I think we should offer it to them. Uh, topical treatment is, of course, the usual place to start, and I do start with that. Um, I tend to use um, uh, potent topical steroids like Elecon. Usually, um, I tend to use um, on the on the body. I avoid the flexures and I avoid the face with Elecon. Um, and I also would often use Protopic twice daily um, on the face and the body. Uh, and I tend to start off with a combination of both of those things to start with. I often avoid steroid use on the face because it's long-term. And for a lot of patients, you, you know, you might improve their vitiligo, but instead replace it with acne and other problems and, uh, and skin thinning issues and potentially you know, glaucoma in eyes and things like that. So I tend to avoid the potent steroids on the face, but um, potent steroids, um, extensor surfaces, um, over the torso, limbs, I tend to do either two weeks on, two weeks off, or sometimes I do five days on, two days off, um, if it's at the beginning of their treatment. Um, I do those things usually. And I have a fairly low threshold for offering patients phototherapy. Um, if the patient has a small area of vitiligo on their face, um, I think that's a very big deal if you're 15, 16, and if you want treatment, you should have it. So I don't think we should be denying patients um, access to narrowband UVB phototherapy, even if they have small body surface area involvement of vitiligo, particularly if it's in visible sites or sites which, or it's, or it's bothering the patient a lot. So I tend to have a low threshold for that. If I think a patient, um, 
uh, if I sometimes I offer patients antioxidant treatment I'm doing that more and more now um, for patients who say don't want to have phototherapy I'll often suggest to them that they have ginkgo biloba as an antioxidant 150 milligrams daily sometimes I will um, add in polypodium leucomatos 720 milligrams daily as an adjuvant during their phototherapy and that can be really useful for some people um, uh, and then we do sometimes offer oral steroids to patients if they are in sort of free fall if that's if they've got fairly large body surface area involvement and their vitiligo is getting rapidly worse. Oral steroids can be very useful. Um, five milligrams of oral dexamethasone weekends only for three to six months as they begin their phototherapy is a great way to do it. And that, that can really help a lot slow the progression of their vitiligo. So that's, that's, my, those are my, that's my sort of treatment ladder, if you like, that I offer most patients. Um, and of course, you, you, you know, but in an ideal world, of course, I think we should, we'd have, a, a, there are a few other things I think we should be layering in. Eczema lamp, I think is useful um, more and more. And I think we're, 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 we've now have an eczema lamp, but we're just starting to get u- using it. So if we have a review of, if we come back in six months, hopefully I'll be able to t- talk to you a bit more about how that's working out. And I think for, for segments of it, I go very difficult to talk about treatment without saying we should be offering patients melanocyte keratocyte transfer procedures and we're, we should be starting to do that soon here at St John's with Magnus Lynch leading on the surgical side of that so really important to offer those things I think um, going forward but we're just starting to do that here because as I say we're 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 we're, but we're a bit behind on vitiligo treatment and we need to get better. And so just on that, um, when is the optimal time to consider kind of repigmentation type treatments? Repigmenting, I think, is always your first... Are you meaning repigmenting or depigmenting? Repigmenting. Repigmenting. I think repigmenting you should just always offer to patients as soon as you see them if you're starting it. I I do sometimes... um, Sometimes for children, I might hold off starting phototherapy, for example. You know, I think small children cooperating with phototherapy, taking them out of school, this can be a really big deal and can really interfere with their life and their development at a key stage. So I tend to be quite careful about phototherapy. I don't refuse a child phototherapy, particularly if it's coming from the child and the child's very keen to have it. But I also do try and push topical treatment um, for younger children as much as possible because the level of interference involved in three or two times weekly trips to the outpatient department for phototherapy is a it's a big deal for uh, uh, a six or seven year old. So I try and I try and hold off until patients are um, uh, sort of seven and eight rather than offering it um, too early. Um, but for adults, I just offer it, uh, you know, as soon as they kind of show an interest, you know, and if they if that's what they want to do, then I, I, I will try and go for it. Sometimes I might, you know, suggest that they try topical treatment if they have a small area, you know, on the torso and they haven't tried topical therapy at all yet. And I might suggest to them that it might be a good investment to make over the next six months to just try the topicals on their own. And sometimes patients do have great results. There's a group of patients maybe I'd say about a fifth of patients with just protopic on their own who do really, really well, particularly usually in the summer months. Um, uh, but I, I think for a really good result, most patients do need phototherapy. So perhaps you could just go into a little bit more detail about how you use phototherapy to benefit patients. So with phototherapy, the key questions are always, um, 
uh, start dose uh, increments and um, maximum dose. Right? And those are the those are the kind of key things really that you want to think about with with patients. And in the past, we used to use a sort of very conservative start dose, um, sort of a hundred millijoules per centimeter squared to start with for a lot of our vitiligo patients. But now we, we, we've sort of doubled that to 200 and find that to be much easier. It saves the patients a lot of time because um, it saves them extra appointments. So that makes a difference. And I understand in, in, uh, in some places they use even higher starting doses, particularly for patients with darker skin phototypes. MEDs aren't really necessary with vitiligo patients, although they can be interesting to do MEDs um, in the vitiligo affected skin and compare them with the um, surrounding skin. Um, the, and certainly if you're worried about phototoxicity or something, it can be useful to do an MED even in a vitiligo patient. But once you get started, you want to use increments of 20% going down to 10% if they have erythema or 5% if they have further further problems. Um, but you want to keep those increments high for as long as you can because it gets the patient up to a, to an effective treatment dose. And you, you're always looking on the vitiligo-affected skin for this pink carnation color, which is a sign that they've had just enough erythema to stimulate their melanocytes to suppress the immune response that's going on um, in their vitiligo. And that that usually is followed by repigmenting, which takes on this the, this appearance of perifollicular pigment coming up in little blooms around the hair follicles. Um, I tend to suggest three times a week treatment, but sometimes in, later on in the course of the patient's very busy and they've got up to an effective treatment dose, we reduce it down to twice a week. Um, it usually takes between 50 and 100 treatments to get a good response with, photo, with phototherapy and vitiligo. This is a lot more than the 30 treatments that you'd expect to clear psoriasis. And I think there's a, there's a big problem with vitiligo phototherapy, which is that dermatologists tend to assume that because it takes 30 treatments to clear 70% of, of psoriasis patients, vitiligo should be the same, but it's a totally different disease and the rules are different. So you, most patients will get a really big improvement with vitiligo if you persevere with the phototherapy. And you know, two thirds of patients will have a uh, 60 to 70% improvement in their body surface area involvement if you persevere up to 100, um, 150 sometimes treatments. So it's well worth persevering. I think that's my most important advice about it, but you do need to get up to a reasonable dose, three joules per centimeter squared. Um, we used to do two, but three I think is, is better, particularly for darker skinned individuals. And um, it, it works really well. And sometimes you'll find that actually when you break through that two joule barrier, you start to get repigmenting in patients who weren't getting it before. I think that's a really um, good point about you know, it being different to psoriasis and, and how phototherapy is used um, and the expectations um, there. Um, so now uh, we're just going to talk briefly uh, about sunscreens and the types of sunscreens uh, that you would recommend for patients with the vitiligo. Yeah, I, I think so sunscreen, yeah, I often recommend patients try and get hold of um, either a tinted sunscreen um, I think tinted sunscreens can be useful, particularly with patients with darker skin tones. They're generally more tolerated. Often patients with very dark skin complain to me when I advise them about sunscreen, oh, it, you know, it makes my skin look purple or gray or, uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't suit. And actually, you know, if it doesn't suit, often patients just won't wear it. So I tend to suggest tinted sunscreens because they can, uh, they can often blend in better. Um, and so if they're not tolerated, sometimes I recommend gel sunscreens. 
um, Helio Care Gels, one brand. I often use, um, I often recommend the Sunsense brand, and I sometimes recommend La Roche Posay's sunscreens, and Thelios um, Ultra, um, and, um, and their tinted and their mineral sunscreen range are particularly good too. So those are the ones I often recommend. Um, and of course, Ultra sunscreen is very good. Sometimes some patients like that because of the charitable component to what they do. Um, so we do recommend that sometimes as well. Hmm. And and what about for the more surgical uh, procedures? Is there a time period um, where they need to have stable disease? Yeah, so surgical procedures, I generally think so. The, the no-brainer group that you offer surgical procedures to are the segmental vitiligo patients, particularly the ones with who've got really established disease. And if someone's just developing a new area of segmental vitiligo, I think you should try and treat them with traditional topical and phototherapy treatments to see how much better you can get it on its own. And sometimes you can make big, big headway. But often once a segmental patch of vitiligo is established and they've got white hairs and all the signs of chronicity that you might see, it will be really difficult to get repigmenting. And so, you know, in those patients, this is where the, the surgical procedure, this melanocyte keratocyte transfer procedure, um, I, I understand comes into its own. And I think you know that's that they're the group to, that really you should be offering it to, but it is also offered to patients with say very stable hand vitiligo, where it's not you know they've not had they've got to the limit of what phototherapy can offer them. They've tried everything else, and they've got this these areas of vitiligo that don't seem to be getting worse, but that are. Um, that are still present. And sometimes people do try and treat those areas with MKTP um, uh, procedures. However, my understanding of the data is, is that it's much harder to make it work in those in, in, in patients who have generalized or acrofacial patterns of vitiligo. And it's much more likely that those are the groups where you'll get a kind of reactivation and a carbonization of vitiligo into the treatment sites and into the donor sites and then you know you just have a bigger problem afterwards than you had at the beginning so i think you have to be very careful with that procedure in patients who have non-segmental vitiligo hmm, that's really interesting um and so uh, what's on the horizon in terms of um treatment well i mean you know i was at the um at the aad um in um earlier on this year in Boston and it was you know every pretty much every uh, skin disease was being discussed as, as a potential target for the jack inhibitor drugs and vitiligo is no different um, I think it, it it's being there are there are various oral and topical jacks from different companies that are all being discussed um, and you, you know, with, I think roxalitinib has recently been uh, licensed for a, atopic eczema, um, but I think three thousand dollars for a sixty gram tube is um, is the kind of you know headline cost. And for patients with vitiligo, who are going to be might be using this cream for um, you know years and years, and perhaps in high volumes if they've got extensive vitiligo. I mean, I think that's going to be a prohibitive cost. I do. There are also, of course, side effects with these with these treatments. You know, um, particularly the oral jack inhibitors and this black box warning. So I think they're really interesting and exciting. I'm, I, I suspect the oral jack inhibitors will maybe perhaps be offered in the future for people with very aggressive vitiligo, and the topical jack inhibitors, if they can come be brought down in price a bit, will become perhaps like you know 
perhaps replacing the role of protopic or something like that potentially in the future. But I think we'll, we have to sort of watch carefully for the side effects. And I think, you know, it's likely to get licensed in Europe before it is licensed in the UK. So I think we'll just watch what happens in Europe with interest and see how it goes with, with these t topical jacks. Um, there are, of course, other things as well. Um, uh, other potential molecules targeting um, resident memory T cells and things like that that are kind of being discussed and there's been interesting work um, showing kind of durable response um, from uh, in, in mice um, uh, with some interesting new molecules um, uh, looking at um, blocking the IL-15 pathway that's involved in um, uh, in communicating with these resident memory T cells, uh, you know that might be interesting. And I know I think there are there are sort of uh, yeah laboratories and private equity companies and things looking at these drugs. So we sort of watch that space. I think that you know and there may well be other things too on the horizon. Um, uh, I think some of Mitsubishi's new um, uh, uh, MSH agonist is interesting, which is being used for porphyria, of course, but that might be useful for some vitiligo patients. Clinivelle's implant drug. Senes was useful for particular patients with darker skin phototypes in, in a study that they did in Detroit. So that might be useful. And um, yeah, I think then there are a few other target molecules I think you know will put our potential. But I think probably at the moment, the, the thing that's really hot is the, the JAK inhibitors um, and other things I think are further down the track. Hmm. Sounds like there's a lot kind of happening um, in that Yeah, there's space. a lot happening suddenly, uh, you know, from having been a very quiet area. It's mm. a little bit like Hydradenitis suppurativa. You, know, you just had this very quiet, you know, very few publications for a long time. And now actually, if you sort of chart publications um, with time on PubMed, it's just going vertical now. So I think, you know, it is an exciting time to take an interest in vitiligo. And, you know, you're at the, you know, and it's, 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 it's always good to, to, drill holes where the wood is thickest and you know it seems like that's the this is the this is the place for uh for people who are interested in taking forward a special uh, a, a subspecialty in dermatology which has been a little neglected for a while yeah that's great um so uh, just in the interest of time we're just gonna um wrap up but um perhaps with our final question i can i can ask you so um some of our listeners um, potentially our patients who would very much benefit from a consult with a dermatologist such as yourself with an interest in vitiligo and photobiology. How can they link in with you? Well, I mean, they can always be referred on the NHS by their local dermatologist or even by their GP to come and see us for a, for, uh, a second opinion at Guy's Hospital in the Vitiligo Clinic. So we're always happy to receive referrals directly. And um, yeah, you can you can find you can find me on the web as well if you want to. Um, I think, um, uh, but yeah, we're, we're I'm keen to see any patients who who, who want to be seen if uh, if they um, if they're seeking seeking dermatology care and they haven't they they have they haven't found the treatment that they need. Amazing. Thanks, Dr. Ferguson. Thanks for being a wonderful guest uh, for our podcast. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's really it's an absolute pleasure to. To join you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again. Bye now. For more information, please visit www.stjohnsdermacademy under our podcast tab. Here you can also find a link to our podcast survey. We hugely appreciate your feedback and we're very keen to hear about what we did well and what we could do better. 
We're also looking for other topics that our audience would be interested in hearing about in the future. All the feedback received will be used to design our future content that suits your educational needs. Finally, I'd like to say thank you to our partners at Derm Academy. Abvi, Amrao, Leo, Lily, Novartis, Sanofi and UCB. Although they don't have any influence on the content produced in this podcast, their support is hugely valuable to us. And thank you, of course, for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.